This is an episode I've been wanting to do for a long time, been thinking about it for a couple of years now, but finally getting around to it. And, um, you know, this is not exhaustive, meaning I can't cover everything. So just, you know, like with everything, take it as an introduction to thinking about stories and meanings. And so what I wanted to focus on is Kabatoma, which is what I have my most experience with. Uh, you may want to revisit the previous episode with uh, Dr. Raporosa, where he introduces Kava and talks about it. And so for me, just as a brief reminder, right, like it's, uh, it's a ritual food. I would, would call it a ritual drink um, that uh, comes from the roots of the, the Kava plant or, or Yangona or Sakao or Ava many other names uh, across Oceania, depending on where you're at and, uh, you know, kind of the quote-unquote uh, traditional or, or indigenous uh, use previously and in some cases still uh, is green, fresh roots. Uh, in most cases, I would say now, though, however, we're looking at dried and pounded roots prior to mixing it with water. And there's a, a lot of lessons, I think, in these stories. Um, and I... Although there was a time where I would think about these as kind of historical, I've kind of moved away from that. And it's not to say that there's not history or memory of historical events in these stories, but I don't think that's how they were uh, initially put together. It, it, you know, um, there's a, a scholar, Inoke Huacao, from the Loao University, um, that uh, got me to begin thinking about these stories as political formulations. Um, and, you know, I first encountered and met him back in 2015. Um, and, you know, he argued that these, uh, you know, kind of Kava origin stories, if you will, Kava cosmogony, uh, were, uh, had a, you know, a political purpose in, in their uh, kind of construction. And so that began to get me to shift in how I think about these. And so I, I would approach these more as uh, poetry rather than history. Um, but of course, like any art, you know, history is going to be in there. Um, society is going to be in there. Um, values and ethics are going to be in there, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but the point is to see it as kind of this complex web of meaning, or rather meanings, um, because there are often many versions of stories and even more interpretations. Uh, and so I'm not claiming to know <laughs> the uh, interpretation of any of this stuff. I'm just going to share with you some interpretations that um, I have uh, come to uh, either agree with or or to propose myself. Um, but again, I don't like to call myself an expert in anything. Um, I will call myself happily a Kava nerd, um, but that's the extent um, that I'll go to. So the first version in Tonga is, uh, this is all coming from the book uh, Tongan Tales and Myths, however, uh, by Edward uh, Gifford. And uh, published uh, by the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii, in 1924, right? So we're looking at a, a compilation of stories um, that was published 100 years ago, but the original forms that he's kind of drawing from are from 
much earlier as well. And one of the things I do like about Edward Gifford's book here is that he does a good job of pointing to the sources of the stories. So there's a variety of stories uh, in regards to Kava. Uh, Dr. Tabitha Kaili uh, points to one of the first being uh, linked to Aho Eitu and Tangaloa Eitu Matapua, them drinking Kava together, uh, and then even other stories of the quote-unquote gods, the um, ancestor guardians um, drinking kava also within what we would call a Tongan context today. Now, I, I say it like that because it wasn't always thought of as, as Tongan as, as we think about today in kind of modern nationalist ideas of identity and culture, but for lack of better words, that's the starting point. So, that being said, the origin of kava itself, the story that says where kava comes from, shows up later on if you if you're thinking about history in, in a linear sense right because you have older stories that refer to kava or where kava has a place and then you get the story that says where kava came from after it already exists in uh, amongst the gods um, or ancestors and um, so one way of thinking about this is when does kava appear or emerge for mortals um, and so that might be one of the reasons why it shows up as an origin later. Um, another one is just, you know, thinking about time differently, that uh, there's cycles of time that are constantly overlapping and that it's re-emerging um, it's, or it's being recreated in a different way. And I, uh, that's another way of thinking about it. It's important to note that. Yeah, it, it already exists, and there's other stories that mention it prior to its origin story. And the origin story is often, at least in my experience and, and research, linked to the 10th Tuitonga, um, which is a particular um, dynasty uh, or lineage or chiefly line. And so you have this lineage of, of Tuitonga, a particular title, the first being Aho Eitu, who it's briefly mentioned previously, but um, who was a, a demigod who is then uh, traced as the ancestor of the living monarchs of, of Tonga today. However, another thing to point, even with you know debates around uh, timing as to when Aho Eitu appears, you know, there I would say the general consensus is about a thousand years ago. However, there are you know some outliers that argue different extremes, some that say, oh no, it was 1,500 years ago that he shows up, and others who say, I, you know, I think a 1,000 years is uh, too far back, it was probably around 500 years ago. Um, however, the general consensus by the majority of kind of scholars, historians, etc., is about a 1,000 years ago. But there's people in what we would call Tonga today at least 3,000 years ago, so there's all kinds of other stuff going on for two millennia prior to even the arrival of uh, the first Tonga but it resets kind of the society in a new kind of way. And um, it's the 10th Tuitonga that is often associated. Now, again, there's debates and, uh, around that, but at least for what I've read and, and you know, talking with different folks throughout my research, the majority pointed Tuitonga Momo as um, the one who was around uh, at this time. Now, the first version of this origin story for Gava is recorded by uh, Rachel Tonga, and was initially translated by Miss Beatrice Baker. I found it in uh, Edward Gifford's book, but he points back to Rachel Tonga as the first person who recorded this. So this is the verse. 
Fevanga in Fefafa lived on Eweki Island. Fevanga was an attendant of the Tuitonga. And in this version of the story, the Tuitonga is Loao, or referred to as a Loao. Uh, and I invited the Tuitonga to the island. When they did arrive, there was scarcity on the island and only one kape plant, which is a giant taro. Um, it's often kind of been predominantly a famine uh, food. You know, I've tasted it and it's, you know, it's good. It's big, it's hardy. You can just leave it in the ground and harvest it when you need to. So anyways, there was one left in, it, on, on Ewiki Island, which is just off of Tongatapu. If you're on the Hahake or the east side of, of Tongatapu, uh, you can oftentimes just see it with, you know, with the naked eye. Um, it's, it's quite close. So as Loao's canoe gear was resting, the, the gear from, from the, the canoe or the sea vessel that Loao had landed with you know, was there resting against the kape plant, and he was close to it as well, Loao, high chief in this context, um, they wanted to go and cook that plant, and so they asked Loao to enter their house so they, they could kind of be discreet about going to harvest that plant and put it in the earth oven for the umu to be prepared. Uh, they harvested it and they put it in um, in the oven after uh, Loao finally left to go into their to their family, their house. Um, but the problem is they had no meat. And so they sacrificed and killed their, their daughter named Kava'una, which is the namesake of Kava. Um, and they prepared the food and presented it to him. And he said, you know, he, he was grateful. Um, but then he asked, you know, have you destroyed your child, the Kava plant? And then they said, you know, take it away and bury it. So here we get kind of this, in this translation, some, you know, we're shifting from a daughter to a plant, okay? Uh, and then it's saying, you know, uh, take it or take her away and bury it or her. The, you know, and again, the tricky thing here too is also in English there's gendered pronouns, whereas in Tongan there's not. So the head and intestines were said to be buried separately from the rest of the body, and all of this was buried behind their house or their fale. And they visited the grave, you know, for almost a week, five nights, um, and from the head, where they had buried the head, grew the kava plant, and from the intestines grew the sugarcane uh, plant, and they both grew big. In this story, a rat chewed the kava plant and stumbled and then ate from the sugarcane um, and then was walking straight again, um, and then continued to do both, showing you know, kind of indicating, you know, rat is teaching the people how to drink kava, that, you know, kava will have a kind of sedative uh, effect, but then sugar will kind of revive you from that. So there's this kind of balance between the, the bitterness of kava and its uh, sedation and kind of enlivenment of sugar, or in other cases, sugar becomes metaphorical for food. But the plants were, were big, they harvested them, um, they took them to Loao, and he responded to them with what became the ancient um, kava chant, or the lao lao o kava, which is still sung today in string band um, compositions that add layers to it, but then the chorus uh, returns to the kava chant. Um, you can hear it in the documentary film that I had, um, that I put together that was released last year called Kava Roots, Roots spelled with a Z or a Z at the end, and you can find that online, um, open to watch. But the, early on in the doco, you can hear the, the kava chant and see the, the lyrics uh, of it as well. Now, in the chant, you know, Loao is said to you know, have responded in what became the chant, which was, you know, he says, chewing kava, 
refers to Kava Onal, the daughter, as the leper from Faimata um, in Ewiki, right? So he's locating a particular village, the child of Ivana and Fefafa, and then refers also to the coconut fiber that was used to strain Kava uh, into the bowl, um, talks about the you know, master of ceremony and you know, back in the day, you know, in this particular ritual context, it was not coconut shells that were used to drink the kava, it was banana leaves. And in some of the other records, if you look at Tokyo Kamea uh, or William Mariners, for example, he uh, talks about these folded banana leaves that could, um, kind of made me think of origami when he explains it, and that, you know, that's what they were using as the main receptacle to drink kava in these um, social rituals. You know, there's mention, you know, after this that the shoots of the kava grow and split and become gray or spotted like the skin of a leper. So this is one of the reasons why kava onau is referred to as a leper. It's a metaphor in many cases, uh, at least in this one, is for the kava plant itself, right? Which is why you move back and forth from the daughter and you might think of the parents as the, the planters of kava in this, in this case, right? But again, that's what I'm saying. You got to think about this as poetry. Right, and that's not necessarily as history, and it's certainly not literal, um, because there is a ton of allegorical and metaphorical kind of meaning um, within this, right? There, there's also a suggestion here, which uh, was echoed by other uh, people in my research, such as the Tongan linguist Melanite Tamoy Folau, that because Kava Onao was referred to as a leper, that those that drink too much become scaly like a leper. Um, this is called kava dermopathy. Um, I personally have never had this happen to me. Uh, even when I was in the thick of my research drinking kava quite regularly, it's never happened to me personally. I have seen some people have it. Um, there's a lot of other factors that might go into it as to who has this response. Um, and it's kind of a dry, really kind of dry skin that emerges out of this. But if you stop drinking kava for a little bit, it returns. Um, and then you just have to be mindful of how much you're having and how often you're having it. Usually it's associated with like very, 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 very heavy drinkers um, and extremely regular uh, kava drinkers. So there's two possible metaphorical meanings there. One, that the leprosy is, again, this is not actual leprosy, right? We're talking about metaphors that are being used. Um, and, and again, in, in, in Tongan, um, you know, it's kilia, right? Which, um, kili is skin. And so it's, leprosy may not even be the right English term at, at times, but because any kind of skin condition would be um, categorized as that, that's one of the reasons why it might have emerged in that way. So this could be a metaphor referring to the the appearance of the kava plant itself, um, or even, you know, in some cases, the, the potential effects of kava dermopathy, which is really the main and uh, consequence that can occur, um, not necessarily harmful, may not be particularly comfortable. Um, I have, per again, personally haven't had it, I know several who have, and they usually um, seem to be doing okay. Uh, and again, if you just stop drinking coffee for a while, it goes away. So that's, you know, kind of this first version that was uh, recorded by Rachel Tonga and um, initially translated by Beatrice Baker. I start with that one just because if you go online and you, and you look up um, the legend of Kava, you're going to find a, a version that is similar, but not exactly that. The one that you'll find online, I think, is the most common version that, that I you know, was regularly hearing. And so I like to look at these older ones as well, just because you can begin to see how stories change over time. And again, if we're thinking about stories as having a political function, then 
you know, the way they're recreated um, and reemerge in different moments in time, we can kind of look at the genealogy of meaning and meanings to kind of unpack that a bit, you know. And so the main one, um, you know, here today is very similar, right? You have a tuitoma or a high chief, at the very least. Some people name who it is and some don't. Uh, shows up on the Hawaii Island. That seems to be pretty consistent in most, not all, but most stories um, in the case of Tonga. And and you have this couple. However, in this main story, it's it's usually the Tuitonga is the one that's resting on the kape, on the giant taro plant. And because he's so tapu, um, there's all these protections around the status of this titled person. They couldn't approach um, the Tuitonga, and that's why they didn't. And so in that, you know, this kind of more common version of the story, they, they don't actually harvest and plant and cook the, the kape. Um, and that's what leads to their dilemma of we don't have, what are we going to offer? Uh, and so then they turn to sacrificing their daughter and offering their daughter who's stricken with leprosy to this high chief. There's a lot of reasons why that might be. I'll get back to that. But just to kind of distinguish a little bit, right? And in this case, the whole body is, in the common version, the whole body is buried in. In some cases, people might distinguish, oh, from the head grew gaba, from the foot grew, uh, grew sugarcane. Uh, and in some cases, the opposite, you know, the head sugar cane and the, from the foot um, kava. But in essence, that, you know, from the head and the foot grew these two plants. The rat is often still there, uh, kind of teaching. So rat is a, a, a teacher here as to how to consume these plants that have emerged. story uh, and this is the second version and this is from Malakai Lavulo of Pangai um, and so now we're jumping from Tamatapu which is the, the largest uh, most populated island today but we're going to go to the Hapai Island group very significant area the current monarch line of modern Tonga has very uh, deep ties in uh, the Hapai archipelago. So Malakai Lavulu of Pangai, Lifuka, in Hapai, um, is the one who is attributed with this version of the story. And again, pointing to Lo'au, Lo'au's ancestors, uh, is, he, he claims, lived in Lifuka, in the district uh, of the uh, Ha'aloa'u, or the Lo'au clan, that is named after them there. And goes into detail of that there's, you know, eight enclosures or fenced villages uh, with many people in this site, right? Um, and he says that Fevanga, right, so that, that was in the previous version, uh, visited him and then said he wanted to go home, and, and then the, but that he would come back. So Fevanga and Fefafa, um, this, this, this parents uh, couple, went to Ewiki Island, having visited a Hapai, and there in Ewiki they had a leprous daughter. And uh, Loao, you know, missed them, uh, and so he went to go visit them in a uh, tafanga or a large rowing sea vessel. Sea vessels, right? We have tomiyaki, which is this, this massive, large mover cargo sea vessel, if you will. The kalia, which is um, high speed but still a large double hulled sea vessel. Now the tafanga is smaller than than those other ones, but and then they actually took the outrigger, uh, you know, and, and are pulling it in. Uh, to the shore and rested 
the outrigger itself against the Kape plant, the giant taro plant. So Fevanga went to greet them as they arrived and found that Lo'au was sitting and resting on the Kape plant um, there as well. And he, said, and he, in this one, is suggesting that they go to the beach where it would be cooler, say, oh, you know, you're probably not as comfortable here. Maybe go further out to the beach where you get the ocean breeze. Um, and the, the purpose here, again, was so that he could dis, you know, discreetly harvest the Kape um, to put it in the umu, or the underground earth oven. But in this story, it mentioned that there was a famine at this time, and so that there was limited resources. And that, but in this case, they were able to get them to go to the beach. And when they did go to the beach, they were able to harvest and cook the kape, but they also put their, their daughter in the umu as well. Uh, when Loal became aware of this, he instructed them to cut off her head and bury it in one place and bury her body somewhere else. He told Fevanga to pay attention to the plants um, that would grow from the head and to care for them. And then he departed to Tomatapu. So this one, you know, Lo'al's given some specific instructions to it, it, in this, right? Fevanga watched and cared for Kava and To, uh, or sugarcane, as they grew. And they observed that they were when they were large, rat shows up again, same thing, nibbles on the Kava and then on the To. Um, the kava and the sugar cane, and they learn of the, of the, the balance of the bitter and sweet, which is why still today people um, either have chasers throughout drinking kava, whether it's fruit um, or something else, um, or have a kai or, or, or a meal afterwards. And so he harvests it and, and um, uh, the, these plants and takes it to Tomatap uh, for the meeting of the, for a chiefly fono or a, a gathering of chiefs. And um, when the Ao sees Fevanga arrive, he cries out the Kava chant to him. And so in this version also, Lo'au is again, you know, replying in this engagement or encounter with the Kava chant. Um, and here he says, oh, this is the Kava from Fevanga and Fefafa who are from Faimata. And he talks about, in this version, this the chief for the Orovaha, which is the chiefly position in the Kava ring. There's kind of very strict seating. Um, and this chiefly ritual goes on and gives more information and stuff as well as far as the materials to use to prepare the kava similar to the, to the previous one. And with that, you know, instructions are given to how to prepare uh, and present the kava to, to everyone. In addition to kava, the directions were given to chop sugarcane um, for a relish. But then, you know, in, in brackets, it's mentioned at this time that um, there's other foods that stand in for sugarcane. So again, sugarcane could be literal, but it could also be metaphorical for the food items you eat that are sweet in relation to the bitterness of kava that um, are, are used in collaboration. And so they mentioned yams, or these root tubers, banana, um, or even food that's eaten um, at the end of the, the kava ceremony. So the third version um, that's written down um, in this one is told by Fevanga, uh, which is a, also a, a title um, on a wiki island. Um, and in this one, it says, you know, this is a, a much abbreviated one. Fevanga and Fefafa, the parents, had their daughter Kava Onao, who lived at Faimata Ewiki, the Tuitonga, Loao. So again, in three of these versions, Loao is the one being referred to as the Tuitonga. Um, this changes later on. Um, but um, after traveling, they arrived at dark, so it mentions that they arrive in the evening. It's the first kind of indication of a time. Uh, of the day, looks and found nothing but this family, um, and there was the single kape again that grew. And this, in this time, 
near their house. Um, and in this version, um, the law places a mat over the, the giant taro plant to use it for a shelter. Um, and as the couple you know, is looking for food to uh, receive in Loao, they didn't have anything and so they offer, they killed their child and roasted her in the earth oven. When they presented it to Loao, he became aware that this was their child and says, no, go bury her properly and that a plant would grow from the grave. Uh, when the plant was grown, you know, they, they then harvested it and took it to Tomatapu. In this case, it says Ha'amea specifically and to present it to Loao there. And again, this case, when he sees them, he cries out, this is Kaaba, the child of Ibn Fafa, and goes on in reciting what became the Kaaba chant. The fourth version, Miss Beatrice Baker, you know, shares this one, and this, she says, uh, was supplied by her father, the Reverend Shirley Baker. So Beatrice Baker uh, is Shirley Baker's daughter. And in this version, during a Honevale, or a Great Famine, the Tuitonga, doesn't say the name at this point, went to Ewa. So Ewa is a different island. You can see Ewa from Tongatapu as well. It's not particularly um, far from um, Eweki Island, but it is a very, very different kind of island. It's much larger. It has a rainforest. It's very unique environmentally compared to other parts of, of actually the rest of the Kingdom of Tonga. Anyways, in Ewa, it says that there was no food uh, during this famine, and, and uh, chiefly women laid uh, her baby dressed and cooked um, like a pig. And the Tuvitonga asked what it was. They said that they had no other food available, and so they brought their child, the best that they could offer. And he replies in this story, uh, you know, <laughs> I am not a man-eater. I'm not a cannibal. Take it away and give it a chief's burial. Give, it a chief, give your child a chiefly burial. And so they did. So the next day, um, the Tuvitonga passed the grave and noticed the plant growing and told them to go uh, and look and the, and the Tuitonga said tend to the plant and that it would be their curse or their blessing according to how they used it and that ends the Kava story there. So, so much stuff in all these stories, can't cover it all, but just want to just throw out again that if we, uh, the importance of thinking about stories is the meanings the multiple meanings that emerge and how they're formulated and, and what they could be signaling to. Um, and each of these stories indicates that. So in the beginning I talked about how the Tuitonga Momo, the 10th Tuitonga, is referred to as the one who was the Tuitonga at the time that these that this Kava story or this Kava origin was being formulated or created. There are close ties between the Tuitonga Momo and Loao who is in many cases referred to as a foreigner from the east. Some have speculated that might have been connected to the Tahitian kind of cultural complex, and, or, or in other cases, um, Hawaii. And in other cases, not that far, um, but that it became a title that represented someone that, that you know came from, from a different place, uh, a, a foreign uh, title. And there's close ties between uh, Loao's daughters and Tuitonga uh, Momo. So which one of them are the ones in the story depends on who's telling it, why they're telling it. And again, thinking about Inoki Kuakao, who argues that um, this story has a political, um, a politicizing context. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you know, in the current most common version, 
you can't approach the Tuvitoma, right? Because of the tapu, the, the protections around, <clears throat> around them are so great. However, in the first three versions, in the, you know, um, in, uh, you know, the Tongan tales recorded 100 years ago, but referring to stories that were, you know, even older than that, we're looking at 150 plus years, as, as far as their uh, recording, on paper that is, they're straight up approaching the Tuitonga and, and actually saying, hey, why don't you go over here or go over here, right? Come to my house or go to the beach, trying to say, you know, stay away from the plant so that we, you know, so they can discreetly go and take the plant. So you see how the, the role of this leader becomes intensified and the power becomes greater uh, when you can approach that person. Whereas in the earlier stories, at least in, you know, that are recorded here, uh, you were approaching that person. Now in the fourth version that I mentioned where it's the only one where it refers to Ewa as an origin place rather than Ewaiki Island, here, this is where I think it opens up a really interesting you know, uh, thing to think about in regards to the politicization of these stories. Is you know, w when they offered it and he realized, wait a minute, who is this? I'm not a cannibal. Right? And if we look at some of the early encounters with, by Europeans um, with people in Tonga, and then through oral history as well that has been documented by Tongans later on, uh, to, be cons to be called kaitangata, a, a man-eater, a person-eater, a human-eater, is a, a huge insult. It's, it's like the F-word. It's one of the you know, most offensive things you could call somebody was to say that they were a cannibal. And in this case, you know, this high chief is saying, I'm not a cannibal. And so it's interesting that it appears in that version and not the other ones. And even in the common one today, it's like, wait a minute, shouldn't this be questioned? Right? On one, you know, and this, this came up in my research. It's always fascinated me. And it's, you know, well, if this person is, and it's just this, you know, the debate and speculation that occurs around the Kava circle, you know, they're like, well, if... If you're trying to honor a high chief, why would you give them, you know, something that is going to refer to them as a cannibal, which was an offensive, extremely offensive thing to indicate of someone at this time. It meant you were tyrannical, right? Yet it's like kind of unquestioned in the, in the common telling of the story. And the other thing that emerges is if you are trying to offer something, because there have been some scholars that have pointed to the fact that you know, they're making assumptions that this is a young woman, um, quote-unquote virgin, you know, there's problematics and assumptions there too, but as to what that even constitutes or how it's defined. But nonetheless, that's in some of the old literature and that that may elevates this as a really high offering. But then at the same time, if they're referred to as being a leper, why would you offer that to this high chief? So in these conversations that emerged um, in these talanoa, one of the things that you know was discussed was that this is a, a heliaki, uh, a metaphor, a uh, allegorical tool to, on one hand, while these stories are emerging as an origin that reinforces a, a new ritual form of kava, a, a new ceremony, if you will, because again, remember, there's been people on in this place for 3,000 years, and according to the range, even amongst the debates of when this would have taken place, we're looking at, you know, the 10th person after the first Tuitonga 
which could be anywhere between 500 and 1500 years ago, that's still at best only half of the time from when copper was already used uh, or, or present in the region. And, um, you know, so for me, this indicates the establishment of the chiefly copper ritual in the Tongan context as we know it today is, is linked to this formation and this story. And again, there's a lot of amazing scholars out there. I just point to Inoka Huacao because to me, that's what I remember the most as to, you know, he was the kind of the, the scholar that really kind of triggered this thinking for me. But there's many others who have indicated and pointed to these things later on as well. There's so much, uh, you know, that has been written about Kaba in, in Tonga. And mostly around the chiefly ritual. I'm interested in kind of the common everyday stuff that most people do. That's kind of more my realm of, of experience and, and interest. But nonetheless, you have to look at this stuff because it's all connected. It's, you know, it's all connected and part of one big kind of whole. And so, you know, on one hand, you have this new ritual being formulated. On the other hand, you have people maybe pushing back and integrating, you know, these little, you know, subtle digs or critiques or criticisms of chiefs or people in power by saying, okay, yes, you are the high chief. We have to respect your tapu um, because of the society we live in. And at the same time, though, they're doing this kind of subtle critique of saying, oh, but we see you as a cannibal, so we're going to give you a, a, a human offering, at least metaphorically, right? Because it doesn't mean that it was literally the case, but it's nonetheless being used in the story. Uh, and then on top of that, we're not just going to give you myself or my, you know, my partner, we're going to give you our, our, our child because, and they're a leper. And so, I mean, if, if you were a cannibal, you know, you're probably going to, you know, think about any kind of meat. Uh, you probably want high quality. I'm not sure you're going to want diseased meat. But nonetheless, right, these are ways in which you can see kind of common, I would argue, everyday people's kind of perspectives emerging in these stories you know, maybe not initially, or but throughout time, as kind of ways to push back on the the power dynamics that exist within the uh, the society. But if we then jump to, you know, this isn't actual cannibalism. This is a metaphor, a poetic metaphor for the kava plant itself, which is what I lean to. You know, at least a important uh, interpretation. Then, really, that severing of the head could represent the cutting of the branches, which is what you use to uh, germinate a new plant. And kava is, as Dr. Aparosa mentioned in the previous episode, is um, not a sexual producing plant, meaning that it's a clone of, uh, and so the only way to perpetuate it is by planting it, right? So you're planting, in a sense, clones of varieties that you like. So good kava farmers are the ones that are picking the best um, ones to that, then cut those branches, part of that body, to, to germinate and then to plant for the next year. Uh, and also the way you, you, you plant kava is almost parallel to the way you plant uh, sugarcane, which is in these mounds, right? You're taking these, these cuttings that once they're able to be planted, then you kind of put them in a mound. And if you've ever planted any type of root tuber, whether it's um, you know, some type of uh, sweet potato or, or, or otherwise, oftentimes that is the method, right? Is you have this mound that you build, which is like a grave mound. Um, and, and you go to Tonga today, any cemetery, you see these mounds uh, in the cemetery that are then decorated. So there's so many parallels, right? The, the, the underground earth oven and its relation to burial um, and then that connecting to planting. Um, and that's how you get the plants to then grow again. And the symbolism of the body and you and the plant and the body being one. 
heaps of stuff in there. You know, I'm running out of time for what I wanted to talk about, but I will mention this to wrap it up here, uh, is that one of the things that has emerged in our current issues around kava drinking is um, because of the commodification of kava, which I'll talk more about in part two, um, there is a lot of pressure to uh, pad it out with other things that are not kava. And really, the, the, uh, what you should be drinking is the roots with water. However, in cases, um, in some cases in Tonga, uh, people are, are putting the branches and mixing the branches in to kind of pad it out. And that was not, you know, if you think about this story, you don't, this is why, you know, in each of these cases, the, the high chief, the Tuitonga, or Lo'au, um, is refusing that and saying, no, let it grow and then bring me the plant, right? Because you don't drink that, and you can see that in the story. Um, however, through capitalism and can kind of our current issues, you have this pressure to pat it out. Now, uh, again, you don't want the, the uh, particularly the bark or the leaves because uh, the alkaloid is toxic. If you were to peel it completely off, you could get a, maybe get away with um, you know the branches, but ultimately there's not a lot of kava like on there. There's the, what gives you the effect of kava. It's not there. That essentially would be used to pat it out. Again, the pressure from kind of modern use and consumption, which I'll talk more about in the next episode. But here in the original stories, you know, even across these varieties, you see this uh, deep knowledge of how not only to plant kava, harvest kava, but what you're going to consume. All the good stuff is underground, and so. And really, the, the lateral roots, the, the tips of the roots are where the, that's the, that's the stuff right there, right? Um, and the roots are great, and you can even have the, the base of the stump up to the first node, but ultimately, uh, beyond that, you, you know, you, it's, you're not supposed to have it. Now, uh, Dr. Alparosa recently posted online, I say recent, but this is probably like a year ago now, uh, a, uh, the, about the Kaba Codex, which was being pushed to kind of help create you know safe regulations around kava especially as it's becoming increasingly popular by people outside of the Oceanian communities having some kind of quality control kind of be put into place now there's other complications that emerge from this that I'll talk about in the next episode but you know one of the things that is put in the kava codex is that it says that only the underground parts of the kava should be exported for drinking not the stalks or stems um, and uh, so that's one thing that we have to be mindful of. As this increasingly becomes regulated, both farmers and cultivators um, and distributors and consumers are going to have to be increasingly mindful because as this gets pushed forward, it is important for safety, but if it isn't happening, which it's not in some cases, and I don't want to say most, but there's many cases, and kava is being uh, diluted with a lot of things and, and not just having the kava, this is an issue. And, and so this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up. But I wanted to bring it up in, in the context of an indigenous perspective of the stories themselves and what they say and what they indicate in regards to not only the political social context, which I think is super fascinating, and how it indicates these complex social dynamics and negotiating power, but simultaneously uh, indicating you know, uh, what is being used and what isn't being used 
even as it's being ritualized in a new kind of ceremonial way, where you just want the roots, you want the stuff that's underneath, that's the good stuff, and the, and the body itself you use to then bury, and then plants grow from that again. But I'll, I'll wrap it up there. Um, the last thing I'm going to do here is leave you with a song, um, and this song is one that uh, I composed, um, and got to give a shout out to Vahatu Itahi, who um, you know, several years ago now helped edit some of my Tongan because I don't speak it fluently. Um, this isn't an old song. It's a new invention that you know I kind of put together a few years ago uh, in the midst of my research and got some help from Vaha to make sure my Tongan was um, uh, correct. It, it, essentially this song uh, was for me, I wanted to have something that I could use when I drink kava to, to remember these stories, to remember uh, these contexts and, and the, the deep rich history of that inspired by the pentatonic scale, which is what was in the fango fango, the tonga nose flute, which indicates a, a, a certain point of reference into the, the kinds of sounds that existed um, uh, anciently and still do up to today. And it's connected to a lot of cultures. It's hard to find a culture that wasn't using pentatonic scale at some point in time. So it's, it may sound familiar to some other um, forms as well. And in the song, essentially, I'm asking, you know, for permission from uh, Hikuleo and Tamaloa and Maui and Hina, these principal uh, guardian uh, deities, uh, ancestors, referring to Fevanga and Fefafa, the parents of Kava Onao, um, and the presenting of Kava, and the different chiefly forms of Kava, um, also acknowledging Aho Eitu, and the ancestors, uh, and kind of the role of Kava to hold on tightly to the land, uh, in gratitude to the ocean um, and also to Loao and asking to set apart and uh, protect or bless the Gaba that we're about to partake of as we seek to reach the heavens or that we bring the heavens down and with kind of the clap come together with Gaba. So that's the rough translation for it. I'll play for it here to, to wrap it up. Thanks for listening to the next one. To Loatu Kule o tuloa tu tangaloa tuloa tu kamaui mohina fe vanga mo fe fa fa vaka fe taiki he kava onau kava kuoheka. Kava kuoheka te taufu taumafa kava te taufu mo ilo kava tapu mo aho etu tapu mo tupuanga O kumau puke puke fonua Malo moana Malo loao Eo tuamu afakatapui e kava Tau e langi Tau e langi Le Tao fu mo fai kava. Le tao fu mo inu kava.